Welcome to the latest episode of Squashing the Market with Bill Ullman. I am very happy to have as my guest today, Phil Rosen, the CEO of Even Financial. Even is a New York-based financial technology company that provides infrastructure to financial services companies and helps them reduce their customer acquisition costs and make more money. Welcome, Phil. Thanks for having me. Before we get into FinTech and Even Financial, tell us, Phil, about your background and your journey to Even Financial from college to startup CEO. Yeah, I uh, dropped out, I guess, in 99 to work, 98, to work in tech startups in New York City. Went to some good schools, but wasn't really a student. Uh, didn't like college, so I dropped out and was working. And it was a lot more fun, honestly, to work in the early startup environments uh, and make a lot of money as opposed to go to college and pay a lot of money. Um, and <laughs> I think I ultimately learned a lot more doing that. That's fantastic. And how did you move from working at various startups to where you are today? So, yeah, I mean, I guess I've been going from, you know, startup to mid-stage company uh, from oh, 97 until 2012, 2013. In 2012, 2013, I started working with Matt Burton and Angela Ceresny on some basically how could we deploy capital across the online lending platforms like Prosper and Lending Club. I brought the code and for the initial versions uh, helped you know with the initial raise and bring people in and you know Orchard was a thing for a while but in 2014 2015 I saw an opportunity in the market that just wasn't being addressed you know we started Orchard really with a thesis that financial service companies were going to become more and more digitally enabled in terms of uh, programmatic access APIs that you know you could build code against in order to access the functionality of a bank or a lending platform and that that meant that there would need to be platforms to connect the dots between these APIs. Orchard was conceived of as one of those platforms, a platform that would sit between uh, the lenders and institutional capital. And while there was a need for that, it did seem to me that there was an even bigger need on the other side of the market, and that would be between the touch points which served consumers uh, and the financial service products that wanted to engage with those consumers. Because what was happening was really a fracturing uh, within the banking infrastructure, whereas, you know, for traditionally we've had monolithic banks where you would go to Chase or Bank of America and consume all of your financial services. Increasingly, we were seeing neobanks and mobile applications add banking functionality and really giving these products directly to consumers and fracturing. That fracturing meant that there was a much stronger need for partnership and connectivity into the financial service products that these direct consumer functions didn't have. They might have lending, but not uh, savings. They might have a credit function, but not a checking function. And all of this implied partnership. Meanwhile, the banks, traditionally monolithic, were looking to engage more and more with the consumers when and where they needed the products. The notion of having you know, a monolithic app wasn't really winning. So we needed a platform that would sit between consumer-facing touch points and give them access to the traditional banking platforms and the new banking platforms to really deliver the functionality their consumers needed there. So I left Orchard to go start Even, uh, which was really in pursuit of that vision, starting with online lending, where I think there was a level of uh, technological maturity uh, that didn't exist elsewhere in banking, largely because it had been so neglected traditionally by the banks. You 
are self-educated in a sense. Mm. You well, learned... I had six years of college. I just didn't graduate. So Okay, fair <laughs> enough. How did you learn your coding? Did you study that in school? Did you pick it up as you went along? I studied along? a little in college. I mean, first of all, I'm not like a great software engineer. I'm probably 85th percentile, and many of my friends are 98th percentile. Um, I think to get to that last bit, you do need uh, some form of traditional education or at least more discipline when it comes to practicing one's craft than I had. But I did start programming from a very young age of around four or five, probably in response to just in inherent learning disabilities, which meant uh, writing with pen and paper was less accessible to me. Uh, so, you know, I was privileged to have a computer basically in 1982, Apple IIc. Uh, you get access to a, a, a basic interpreter at the command line. And you can pretty much do whatever you want in that. Um, and that, you know, was something I could work in and enjoy and that made sense to me in a way that initially reading and writing didn't. And one of the words you've mentioned, even in the beginning of this podcast, has been API. It's really not a word. It's an acronym. Can you tell listeners what an API is, sure. what it stands for? Uh, you know, I think going back a level, you know, programming is really about a series of abstractions, right? And, uh, you know, you start at a very basic level. And you've got electrons moving across, you know, silicon in gates doing basically binary um, to figure out, you know, yes, no, and, or, et cetera. And over time, programmers have built up abstractions on top of that, assembler, uh, you know, C, and then more and more, I guess you could say, accessible programming languages like JavaScript, et cetera. APIs is, are another form of abstraction where we're taking the functionality that is usually... Uh, built in such a way that programs have to depend direct on direct access to one another. Now we've exposed that programming functionality or that software functionality as an API that third-party systems can interact with and access um, over uh, a consistent set of standards such that you know computer A with company A can talk to computer B at company B and have a consistent way of interacting. This isn't a new concept. This has been something that's been going on for, at this point, literally decades. But I think back in 04, 05, uh, Bezos wrote a memo to Amazon where he mandated that all data exchange internally amongst his departments had to be done via APIs that could be eventually made public and commercializable. And that gave rise to what we now know as Amazon Web Services, right? And now they power things like Netflix. So you provide these API interfaces to financial institutions? Well, actually, no. So we don't provide APIs to financial institutions for the most part. There are some. But really what we do is we have an API that non-financial institutions or financial institutions who want to bring in third-party products can integrate with in order to uh, connect to pre-approved firm offers of credit within personal loans, credit cards, in the future mortgages, quotes and insurance, et cetera, and put those in front of the consumer and in their apps. An example of that would be uh, Clarity Money, diversifying their loan options within their application, TransUnion's Marketplace, where we put personal loan offers for them to help monetize their consumers, uh, companies like SoFi and Marlette, where we handle both declines and cross-sell for them. They're looking to add financial service products to their experience from third parties. We engage with the banks on their terms. Some of them have APIs. Uh, certainly the challengers and the neobanks have a degree of functionality where they can do real-time credit checks and underwriting. And when they have those, we integrate with those. But many of them, especially the incumbents, do not have that. Uh, and then we, But we still want to connect consumers to their products and enable them to participate in our market. 
So when that's the case, we have uh, basically hosted underwriting systems where we can onboard the credit criteria as well as the pricing and product uh, elements of the banks into a system which we host. We don't do underwriting. We're not a credit reporting agency, but we do have a managed service where on a SaaS basis we can do the digital decisioning uh, or execute the digital decisioning of the banks within our environment. That enables them to get to market when they may not have the APIs under develop, uh, available yet. What would be an example of working, say, with a traditional financial institution that, sure. that you've done? So, you know, today we do work with American Express on a variety of products, uh, Goldman Sachs on both personal loans as well as high yield through savings. Maybe accounts. Marcus. Yeah, through Marcus. Um, you know, Mar Goldman Sachs also owns Clarity. So, Clarity Money is integrated with us to diversify their products that they serve their customers with on top of the Marcus products. But on the other side, we integrate, we drive consumers to the Goldman Sachs products. Uh, from over 150 different channels today. And how would you do that? Explain that, because that's sure. the key thing. This is right. all about so, lead generation. Well, it could. it's sometimes about lead generation, right? Certainly in publishing and performance, marketing, right? So we have publishers who are operating marketplaces or are doing content marketing who use our systems to put financial service products in front of their consumers. They get paid for those consumers. But increasingly, non-publishing and performance companies, what we call non-media companies, want to diversify the ways in which they serve their consumers. And it's not necessarily because they want to make more money off the transaction. It's because they want to have a deeper relationship with the consumer. Uh, so even brings the technology to connect programmatically to a large number of products. Uh, we also bring a network of financial service products. Um, and for those non-media channels who are often engaging with us on a SaaS or transactional uh, basis, they can onboard any of their own products. Uh, and so, you know, we're just there as a technology platform to enable them to develop this marketplace functionality. Uh, and all of the economics are between them and the banks. You talked about expanding the types of financial services yeah. that you want to provide. Talk, yeah. talk about your vision for Even so, and mean, where it's going. We see it as, you know, the full life. Uh, cycle of a, the consumer in terms of the financial services we want to cover, very specifically the consumer. Um, you know, you start as an infant with nothing. Your parents might be setting aside a tax advantage account to save for college, right? That might need investment. Um, then you might, you know, be an adult with no credit and you need to build it. There's a variety of ways of doing that, self-lenders, secured credit cards, et cetera. You might have great credit and you know want to pay or buy things and then want to insure those things, or you might have poor credit and you need to recover them. And then you need to save for your own family events and your own retirement and then think about uh, you know, basically the, uh, you know, what happens when you pass away, right, in terms of inheritance. So, you know, every single moment throughout one's life really does have the need for financial service products, right? If you're thinking about, you know, home improvement, purchasing a home, your kids going to school, uh, buying a car, selling a car, insuring a car, right? And the reality is, is that we're only putting uh, today, traditionally, you know, advertising in front of people which isn't necessarily a great way to do it. Consumers don't love it. You know, if you go into Trulia or Zillio today and you say, I'm interested in a mortgage, you're going to get a half dozen phone calls within an hour and you don't know who's actually approved you. That's not a good thing to do, right? Uh, really, and you shouldn't be really even thinking about as advertising so much as, you know, aiding the consumer and what they're trying to achieve at that moment. You know, I'd rather, you know, have a consumer who's looking to renovate their kitchen have the contractor say, yeah, click here and here's the $20,000 you need to do it at a good rate. And then that's facilitating everybody's interests. Then, you know, spend two years trying to convince somebody to take a home, a loan for a home improvement potentially, right? That's not 
that's not meeting a need that's convincing them to do something that may or may not be in their interest. So we want to meet the consumers when and where they need the financial service product and then give them something that is specific to them. You know, behind all of this API connectivity is a tremendous amount of data. We have 45 million user profiles in our system. That's all of somebody's information that they've basically consented us to have to do product decision and recommendations that is augmented with uh, data from traditional data providers in financial service like Axiom, plus uh, data from Plaid, uh, plus data from TransUnion. And then we see everything everybody's been approved or rejected for and what they actually convert into. And we do it across products and across channels. This means that we have the ability to you know, really understand what a consumer needs and say this is the right thing for you here and now, right? And that's, the, that's recommendation, right? And that's also search, right? The, the concepts there are not lead gen, it's not APIs, but it's search and recommendation essentially. Uh, and that's what we're building towards when we think about you know, how do we serve the consumer. It's enabling them with access to the financial service products they need, but also helping them find the ones they need when they need it. Did I hear you say you have data on 45 million U.S. Yes. consumers? What kind of a responsibility is that for you I mean, from a regulatory deep, we, point of view? Yeah, so regulatory, we're licensed in a bunch of states as a financial service company. But also, you know, we've gone to great lengths to basically strip it of strip the PII out explain right. PII to so people. personally identifying information so when we do you know basically the ML right recommendations uh, it's against data where we don't know nobody's name number address right it's all done on abstractions again but you know that data is very powerful for helping people understand you know what's available and what they need five years ago online lending was all the rage you had the IPOs of uh, lending club and and on deck. Right. Uh, the industry seemed to have boundless growth potential. We've seen several of these companies run into a lot of trouble lately. Their stock prices have become mm -hmm. depressed. What, in your view, is your assessment of all that, and what's happened to the online lending marketplace? I mean, the nature of it has changed, right? I think the reason it got a lot of attention, right, was because, you know, a couple companies innovated when it came to how they sourced capital, right, that they were going to lend out, right? It wasn't because, like, lending was new. <laughs> right. Nothing was, new about that. Right. It was because they had basically said, oh, we're going to you know, enable retail investors to provide the capital. So-called peer-to-peer lending. Right. And it turned out that that wasn't always the best or most efficient way to gain the capital necessary to lend. But in the meantime, it does. I do think that there was a lot of innovation when it came to user experience right, and making the lending process better for consumers. That was sort of no one really paid attention to how important that was. And a lot of... Uh, innovation also in terms of, you know, how you could use a personal loan, right? Making it m more accessible to consumers, right, in more places as opposed to just being debt consolidation. So, yeah, I mean, it got everybody got attention for, because of the peer-to-peer -peer factor. No one really paid attention to the improvements to user experience or access um, and some, you know, I'd say marginal improvements to underwriting. And those improvements haven't gone away. And I don't think that lending in general, it's not like demand for lending is down. It's actually way up. It's up. You yeah. Know, I don't, if you look it, at stats in the country, lending goes right. up every year. It's not necessarily always going to be like that. We might see a correction at some point. But overall, lending is a thing now. And it's a bigger thing than it was five years ago. And what hasn't really taken hold is the funding mechanisms because it turns out uh, banks are really efficient at buying money 
in savings accounts, and that's a really good way to source capital to lend. Uh, and the other things we were thinking about weren't so great in the end after all. So lending is a very real thing. Growth continues. Right now, there is uncapped budget to acquire, acquire consumers from most of the lending established lenders. If you are driving you know, accounts that meet their KPIs on ROI and approval rates, uh, you know, there is no limit to how much they will capital they will deploy for now. You know, that's not a permanent situation. But, you know, I certainly would say that, you know, it's gone away. <laughs> it's not going to. Talk about for a moment growing your company, even financial, to where it is today. And if you could spend some time talking about funding and capital, how sure. you do that for your business, the people and the recruiting and the tech infrastructure for your clients that you're building. Sure. So, I mean, first of all, we were lucky and privileged to have access to great venture capital from day one before it was, you know, we even had a product, right? So, you know, just starting with being able to have $3 million in cash to build a company based on a PowerPoint and, you know, a team uh, is really a great privilege and not something that a lot of people have. So that let us spend a good year or two focusing just on product. A lot of things were tested. It wasn't always, uh, you know, it wasn't. It certainly wasn't easy. It wasn't always uh, a ton of fun. It was often a lot of challenges. But you know, the end result was really very much in line with the idea we started out with. Ultimately, there was a lot we didn't know about what was necessary to do that, um, especially when it comes to the other side of the market and working with publishers and performance marketers, which is where we started because there was an immediate scale. Although it's a very competitive and challenging environment, so putting in place the technology necessary to support both sides took a long time to figure out. Once there was a degree of product market fit found, though, growth was very, very, very rapid. Uh, you know, I'd say in two years, we went from you know, maybe $15,000 a month uh, in r revenue uh, with negative margins uh, to, you know, pushing $3 million a month in revenue, right, with very strong margins. But that was not because we suddenly figured out marketing or sales it entirely came down to technology and leveraging data. I think that only happened because the majority of focus of our resources went into engineering, uh, uh, building an engineering team in New York City, uh, not relying on outsourcing, building uh, a small team of really strong engineers to deliver uh, rapidly a lot and test on a lot of ideas very quickly. And is that, is that your experience for successful startups focusing on the product and the engineering first? I mean, I'm more, I'm more of an engineer and product person than I am, uh, you know, sort of a salesperson or a business development or a marketing person. So, I, I mean, I think I'm naturally inclined there. I'm sure you could do both. But, you know, if you think about what our, our product and our idea was, it was very much a technical product, right? Like you're not yeah. going to win with great marketing and a great sales team, right? When you're trying to deliver an API to clients who ideally have are, you know, somewhat technical and have to do a technical integration. It's just, so you're you're selling to software engineers well, at the financial they are, institutions, it, right? Ultimately, you could sell somebody on the idea at an institution or a publisher, a performance marketer or a mobile app, but if there's nothing for them to integrate with, it's not going anywhere, right? You can't build this on marketing. There has to be real tech. Talk about the management challenges from a personnel point of view of going from what you described 10 to 18 people early on to where are you today? Uh, I think we're 98 or 105. Call 100 know. people. Yeah, we'll That's be 140. Pretty, bi pretty big growth yeah. in a short period of time. First of all, it's been very fast. You know, we've gone from 
basically in 18 months, we've gone from 15 people to about 100 people. Uh, and we've done that, I guess, across two uh, growth spurts, right, of hiring. You know, basically, there's what I found is there's certain moments where it's just like, uh, you know, things break down a little bit as you do that growth. It's not that, you know, it's a permanent breaking, but, you know, people all of a sudden are like, who are all these new faces? You know, managers might, you know, all of a sudden just have felt like they got their their footing and they've only been there four months. And then everything's, you know, now there's been like this whole other growth spurt to the organization that requires, you know, a new level of management capabilities and expertise um, and the expectations for what our management team has to deliver all of a sudden has moved from, you know, hey, you're managing a team of four to now you're managing a, three teams of, you know, and that you've got 18 or 20 people. And some of them may have never done that before, right? And that, that evolution happened while they're figuring things out on the run uh, in four months. And I don't think we really could have started with somebody who had that kind of experience immediately because they probably wouldn't have been able to build the team with like the tactical execution people you needed from the outset. So the expectation is that our, everybody on the management team, especially myself, has to really continually grow as we grow the org because the challenges keep um, changing. <laughs> <laughs> and talk about sourcing talent, which is so hard in New York City and Silicon yeah. Valley today for engineering talent. It's very expensive. It I is know. expensive, but, you know, I... There, without a doubt, we've built one of the best engineering teams in New York City, um, certainly the best I've seen and been a part of. Uh, and we are pull, competing for talent with the Googles, Twitters, and Facebooks in New York City, and more often than not winning. That, I think, does come down a bit to culture. It does come down to the fact that we're an organization that has a certain, uh, if not favoritism, a high appreciation for engineering methods and culture. And so, yeah, we built out a very solid engineering team of about, I think, 35 top-notch engineers, extremely low attrition rates. I think we have a 95 or 98% retention rate within our engineering team. You know, this isn't easy, but I think it is easier for us because of our engineering bent. Uh, you know, where we have actually had a harder time hiring has been in uh, product and business development because there, you know, we're doing something that is very... We're dealing with a lot of complex products, right? You can build an entire company on personal loans or mortgages or savings accounts or any of the insurance verticals or wealth management. And we are trying to pull all of them into a unified system and deal with all the implications that has both regulatory compliance and then activating and actualizing data, right, in a powerful user experience across many, many channels. That is an incredibly challenging product task, right? And so so that's been hard. Um, I'd say that also business development in this space, a really challenging thing because um, a lot of people have spent time traditionally fighting over the same territory. In other words, you know, there's probably six to eight billion dollars in TAM within media financial services affiliate spend, but it's dominated by the same five players. And most companies are entering the space saying, I'm going to go and compete with those five, right, over a consumer base that isn't really growing, right? That TAM is reflective of how many consumers 
are in market on any given day via SEO, SEM, or display, in other words, active, educated searchers, these companies are very rarely educating and creating new consumers. So BD has been very focused on that type of acquisition and that type of consumer engagement and hasn't spent as much time thinking about new and other ways of delivering financial service products to consumers. So finding the mix of talent we need to go and really build out the network of partnerships we need is uh, a challenge as well. You're hiring most of your engineers here in New York. Outsourcing is a big issue in the country generally. Talk about how you've been able to do that successfully because a lot of tech companies go outside the country to find less expensive talent. Right. So we've never done outsourcing. Um, everything is – we have one, I guess you could say, consulting company in New York that is a small shop that we consume 100% of the time they have available to consult. And basically, they split their time between their own product development and us. Uh, we've been working with them for two years. They're great. Um, not going to say their name. But other than that, you know, we have done everything in-house. It is very expensive. It's time-consuming. And I don't think we're going to stop growing here. But you know, I think we probably – we're not going to ever outsource. But we will, in all likelihood, develop um, remote – teams who are of employees um, in places where there's great talent that is uh, more affordable. Um, I don't think, you know, we, what we could do, what we're doing outsourcing, but certainly standing up teams uh, in other countries, which, you know, have different market uh, Im implications is something we're looking at doing right now. How well prepared do you think traditional financial institutions are today for the digital financial services industry of the future? I mean, that's a really open-ended, big question, broad. In uh, some places, or have you seen a change over the well, last yeah, there couple is a of change. years? I mean, so first of all, I mean, banks are leaders in you know digital, you know, operations and you know basically serving using data science and technology right to provide their services. Banks are really often at the forefront of that. Where I think there's a lot of legacy tech and where it's been slower to deliver on it is around these concepts of open banking and API distribution, right? And that kind of makes sense because these are risk-adverse institutions who have some very sensitive data that is also quite valuable to them. And so it's not necessarily clear to everybody within you know, a bank why they should do it, right? So I'd say the change I've seen in the banks is that the debate is increasingly favoring strategies that build APIs and make them available. It's not that the debate has gone away. It's just that the you know within the banks, the argument is starting to lean to favor those who say, let's build APIs and let's take a distributed banking approach. That's not true at all of the banks, but it's certainly that's the shift I've seen. So, but once they do that, then it comes down to strategy, right? And like, there's a lot of people who will pile on those strategies at the large banks. And then it comes down to also even like ability, right? And so these are very, they have very complex legacy systems that they started building in the 60s or 70s around mainframes. And then they've added on layers to that and added on layers to that. And then they've acquired how many hundreds of companies that have their own systems. So even unwinding their current stack and figuring out how to put an API in front of that is its own question. You know, there are entire companies, legacy companies out there that have built their business models on hosting and activating data for the banks in a way that the banks it's just can't do, right? And so, 
you know, desire and win and argument aren't the same thing as ability to activate. And that's why it's very important that we bring systems that enable uh, the banks to participate in our market without having the APIs. Have you noticed any difference between larger banks and you know smaller community banks, and in what how well I mean, prepared the they community are banks often rely more on vendors, right, for their tech. So you know the vendors can move them a little more quickly. On the one hand, on the other hand, they have a lot less money to do it, and probably less incentive to do it. You know, if one of them all of a sudden decide to basically become the Amazon Web Services of banking and just go full bore, open up all their bank functionality as, you know, core bank functionality via APIs, they probably would go from being a community bank to a very large bank very quickly. But, you know, I haven't seen that really done. And there's certainly a lot of challenges in doing it, both regulatory and in execution. Within the large incumbents, there is a big range. Some are very strong on tech, but haven't even haven't gotten to the place where they're willing to sort of emotionally commit to working with the companies who want to work with the things they've built. They built it, and then they're like, "Well, wait, we don't actually know if we want anybody using that." Um, others have said we want to do that and have it don't have the tech. Others have it in one part of the bank, but not the other part of the bank, and maybe not for the same purpose that other people think they should have it. So it's really fractured. It's really chaotic, and all of that is very good for even. Great summary. The Squashing the Market podcast is not only about fintech, but about investing. And I always like to ask uh, my guests about their own personal approach yeah. to investing, not specific investments per se, but how you think about it, how you allocate, what's the so decision I'm not a process. I'm investor. I've made a couple of small investments right, in things that I thought were cool. And I don't have like the mindset of a rigorous investor to really evaluate it. I basically look, you know, if I think things are cool, if they are legitimate, bringing legitimate uh, tech solution to a problem that is very, very challenging and has an opportunity for scale. Um, but also, right, I'm not investing in large companies. Like when I have invested, it's been in small startups. So that really is about team space and market opportunity more than anything. I assume you save for the future in a general yeah. sense. And do you participate in your 401k? Well, do you things do things programmatically? I am, you know, I am concentrated in one of the most risky asset classes ever, right? So like if you look at it, 99% of my net worth is locked Tied up, up in your company. As a, a startup. Right. <laughs> right. So that means that anything I do make liquid, you know, I tend to be very conservative about, right? I've made a couple of ch cherry picked angel investments essentially. And then other than that, it's basically uh, index funds <laughs> and savings accounts because, like, I am incredibly over-leveraged in, like, my own company. <laughs> Fair enough. So the last thing we do on the Squashing the Markets podcast is what we call the lightning round. So okay. I'm just going to give you pairs of words. You pick one of the two, mm -hmm. and you don't need to say why. Okay. What do I pick? You, what am I you, picking? You're, you're I'm gonna, just picking the words. You're just going to pick. Okay. You'll, you, it'll be clear. Consumer loans or small business loans? Uh, consumer loans. Data or privacy rights? You can't really pick on that. They go hand in hand. I mean, probably privacy rights, but like. It's okay. Google or Apple? Um, right now, Google. Reduce customer acquisition costs or grow revenue? Uh, reduce customer acquisition costs. IPO or sale of company? Uh, IPO. Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk? Oh, Bezos. 
VC investor or strategic investor? VC. U.S. dollars or Bitcoin? Dollars. Lending tree or First Data Corp? I don't know enough about First Data Corp, so Lending Tree. <laughs> Ivy League or Coding Academy? Uh, Ivy League. Thank you, Phil Rosen. Thank you. You've been a pleasure to have on the show. Thanks for having me.